Hey, this is Dave McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. And this week, we're joined by a fantastic guest, Azim Azar, to kick off our 2022 season. Azim is a futurist. He's a podcaster. He's an author. He's an entrepreneur. He's a lecturer. He's an analyst. He's pretty amazing. And for the last 25 years, he's been deep in technology and business and bringing those cultures together. Azim joined us to talk about The Exponential Age, a book he's recently written, I highly recommend it. I read it myself and his podcast of the same name. And it talks about how in the last century, the big tech changes to us, electricity, the internal combustion engine, and the telephone changed our lives. But in the next century, technology is literally exponentially changing underneath us. And a way to think about this is that technology or a technology company is going to come between you and I and every basic need or core interest we have in the future. So what does that mean for us? What's the implications of that? How do we show up and engage in that? It's a compelling conversation. Now, Azim and I spend most of our short period of time, about 45 minutes, talking about the future of cities. There's so many things to cover in the book, from cybersecurity to cities and many other disruptive ways that technology is impacting our lives. But this particular area caught my imagination. I'm sure we'll have more conversations on this in the future. But this week, I hope you enjoy this conversation on the QTS experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. Three, two, one, Azim Azar, welcome to the QTS experience. Dave, it's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because uh, you are a technologist at heart, and uh, I'm hoping we're going to get a chance to geek out a bit. I hope so. I don't know if I'm a technologist so much as I'm a nerd in the world of technology. And, um, you know, I loved your story. We'll dive into your book um, in just a moment. But I, as I, as I listen, I've listened to a number of your stories. I've seen videos. I've read the book. And I just love it. I'm a few years ahead of you, but we're essentially the same era. When you talked about um, your IBM, uh, whatever it was that you brought home and the, the trash 80. I remember coding with my friends so we could figure out how in high school to play this little video game called Defender or, or the Radio yeah. Shack version of that. That's right. Um, and so my grades sort of went like a boomerang. They went up because of my interest and then they went down because of my gaming experience. But uh, it was, and so and to homage, I have my... Um, my nerd shirt on about uh, VH or cassette tapes to iPod players. My children have no idea what I'm talking about. They missed oh, the glory years. They did miss the glory years. I was talking to um, someone who just started working for me, who's just graduated her her <clears> master's, <throat> and I said to her, "You know, you, you you won't remember the internet when it was fun." Yeah, and I was right. talking about like ninety one, ninety two, ninety three, right. where it was just this endless set of rabbit holes of exploration and of collaboration right peer to peer you're on netscape and you're like wait what's that wow wow you can do what it was unbelievable followed also you know it wasn't all joy somebody fixed the printer queue or somebody get word perfect before we switched to word working or whatever we had to go you know interrupt our daily lives to make it work but man it was a lot of it was a lot of fun so good times Good times. Uh, well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, you've uh, you've written a book, um, 
exponential age. What is the entire title in the U.S.? The entire title in the U.S. is. Oh, I put you on the spot. I didn't mean to. You have, because I actually don't remember the full U.S. title. I'll have to read that. I'm looking it up on Amazon. Uh, The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. Yeah. And it's, um, I read a lot of nonfiction, whether it's just my personal interests or guests that come on. And um, typically, Azim, what I'll do is I get them and I'll kind of skim real quick chapters and the big idea. And um, and then I read pretty quickly. I just skim, read, skim, read, skim, read. I This one, I started skim reading and had to say, whoa, 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 slow back down. What happened? And I had to back up and reread. And it absolutely captured my imagination. And I don't say that about very many books. I think it's just my familiarity with the story, um, Mm -hmm. at least to this point, but so many kind of like we were talking about beginning of the internet, so many surprises where when you make the point, it seems, well, of course that's the point, but it wasn't obvious to me as I was um, reading through it. So there's, there's a lot there to talk about. A couple caught my imagination, but before we dive into that, what is the exponential age? Yeah, I think it's really important uh, to to explain that. Um, you know, we we live in these societies, these modern economies, and we we're like goldfish in in our bowl of water, not really thinking too much about the water, let alone the bowl itself. Uh, right. And it, you know, the, the way we live is is much very much guided by that. And and when you start to unpick it, and, and economists and historians and sociologists do that, they start to see a relationship between the technologies of of an age and the way in which businesses and culture and communities form and shape and are shaped by those technologies. Mm -hmm. The 20th century, and we are sort of just out of the 20th century, was shaped by three really important technologies, uh, the internal combustion engine and the entire petrochemical infrastructure that came below that, Mm -hmm. the telephone and electricity. Mm-hmm. And they defined how cities worked, how industries worked, the products we bought, the, the nature of relationships between nations and states. And as we made changes from the sort of pr- late industrial era of the 19th century, based on these technologies, they echoed through ways of work. Uh, and we started to get, for example, office and factory jobs of a type that we'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to understand that because the exponential age, if we are the goldfish, is about a fundamental changing of the water and the goldfish bowl mm-hmm. uh, that, that surrounds us. And the reason it's it's exponential is that those three 20th century platforms are being supplanted by four really interesting families of technologies, computing, which we know really well. Mm. what's happening in biology, what's happening in new energies, and what's happening in in manufacturing through 3D printing. And each of those technologies will, as it gets rolled out through our societies, change the way work operates, the way firms operate, what jobs look like, what the tensions between countries are, how important cities become. But they are exponential in the sense that they're improving at double digits or better every single year, year after year after year. Mm -hmm. And so what looks expensive in 2005 looks really, really cheap 
by 2015 and even cheaper by 2020. And that wasn't true about electricity and the telephone and the car, uh, and certainly wasn't true for decades at a time, which is what we're starting to see. And so I argue that really the exponential age is not just about new general purpose technologies that will redefine society. It's also about the fact that these technologies change, improve, move forward, get cheaper at these pretty incredible rates. When I was reading the book, you make that point, which is fantastic. And it was, you know, it's a combination of Moore's law and Wright's law. And I, I remember when I was a kid in the army, I bought a um, VHS player for my parents. This probably would have been 1984. I want to say mm-hmm. something like that. It weighed as much as my car. Pretty sure I had to get somebody to help me get it. It was a thousand dollars or something crazy. I had to finance it. I was just a, a kid in an airborne unit, took it home. And as I read the book, it reminded me of that story. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, you know, five years later, that same VHS player was only 200 bucks. It wasn't a thousand bucks, but it was the same VHS player. There mm-hmm. might've been, it might've rewound a little bit quicker or drew a little bit less power, a little bit less weight, but essentially it was the same thing. And as I read your um, more and more examples, I realized, wait a minute, this is a combination. This isn't just, it's less expensive. It's exponentially more powerful, the technologies mm-hmm. that you tease out. Mm-hmm. So, it, so it's this amazing shift of here's how it becomes so much more accessible to everybody in the population, not just a particular few. In many cases, the technology's got much simpler. Like I was one of the first adopters of TiVo, which you had mm-hmm. to have a PhD to get that thing to freaking work. And it cost a fortune. And within just a couple of years, you could get a super simple, just as powerful, easy recorder to do the same thing that you didn't have to do all this programming. And so is that, is that those two things came together in my mind, it just opened up this realm of possibilities of where else we could go, but also how it could be exploited. So I thought it was amazing. What, why write the book though? So you, you've, you've made these recognitions. What, what was it that you said, you know what? I got some time to burn. I don't need to spend time with my kids. I'm going to write this book because it's spectacularly well-researched. So many things that you claimed, I was like, that can't be true. Clicked on it. Crap. That's true. It's well-researched, peer, peer-reviewed. So why write it? It, it is quite well researched. And in fact, uh, 65% of the original footnotes were taken out uh, before oh the uh, edition that you have. And there are 400 or so footnotes uh, in it. And um, I, I wrote it because, uh, like you, um, I have lived alongside these the, the t- clock speed of Moore's Law from a, right. a child. And I have... Um, internalize so much of what I've learned, as many in the tech industry have. We just sort of understand it. We know when things are both amazing and haphazard at the same time, which a lot of early technologies are. And we've moved now past the point of technology being something that a hobbyist kid or teenager loses their weekend in. I mean, it is the fabric of of our everyday life. And I have a very privileged position in having spent nearly 30 years in the industry and having been a practitioner building these technologies and having been an investor and being a bit analytical, I have a position that I think allowed me to spot some patterns that weren't being well 
articulated uh, mm. elsewhere. And so I was able to come out and knit these things together, these, these ideas from other people to construct what I would say is a sort of systemic view about the future. It, it, it's, a, it's like the, the aboutness of the future that I've tried to capture uh, in the book so that you can un- understand it. It's a little bit like when you go, um, you know, when you go on holiday uh, somewhere and say you're going to a, a country overseas and there are going to be loads of things that are going to be different about that country, but you need to capture something about the country. And that's what you you want. It's, it gives you enough of a sense of that, that allows you to make sense, whether it is this is a country where you don't tip people, so never tip people, it's seen as an insult, right. or this is a country where, uh, you know, you should always allow someone to open the door for you as you approach it. Those types of hints and clues. And I felt that there wasn't a book that talked about what I think is 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 going on that helps you encapsulate the connection between the technologies, how they're changing, and how they're shaping uh, society. And that's part of the reason why the book is, is I think, quite dense, although probably still quite readable, mm-hmm. because capturing those dimensions in 300 or so pages, it does require me to, to put a lot in there. Yeah. And I would just love to emphasize that. Um, we haven't talked about this off air. Off air. I am. I have no... Uh, challenge. I mean, I, we always try to be respectful to our guests to say, hold on, I, I don't agree with this idea or that idea. I will 100% agree that the way that you present the material for a casual read is spectacular. I can quickly read and get the big idea. And then if I want to check the facts, I can very easily click that footnote and it will take me to you know, the, the one that you provide, but then through the power of the interwebs, I can, well, does everybody agree with that or whatever? And so I can get much more granular. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, but hmm. I thought it was a very easy read. Um, I have no problem giving it to my non-technologist friend and say, hey, check this out. I think this would be really um, interesting for you. Uh, I hope you've got lo- loads of non-technology <laughs> friends, uh, Dave, uh, well, you know, the more the merrier. Most of them are. Most of them yeah. are. Um, so one of the things that you that I read that I thought was really interesting was this idea of the relationship between technology and society being symbiotic. So before I dive into some of the weightier stuff, what did you mean by that? What's the point you're trying to make? Yeah, um, thank you. The There's often this idea that um, technology is um is deterministic, that it appears a little bit like an asteroid out of space. And, you know, it's either going to land and give you some iron ore that you can mine, or it's going to flatten your house. And <laughs> we just have to put up with it. Uh, and and that is an idea that technologists, particularly in Silicon Valley, uh, are really keen to promote because it, in a way, it absolves them of the hard thinking work of the impact and the nature of their technologies. And, and it's closely tied up with this idea that, um, technology is somehow neutral, that it, it comes into the world a little bit like mathematics or math, uh, as, as you call it, that a, you know an addition or a subtraction is an additional subtraction. Mm-hmm. Um, but And if technology is like that, again, it absolves uh, the makers of harder questions about what they're actually building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what you know, other domains, as a there's academics field called uh, science and technology studies, but there's also sociology and economics. Very, very clear that 
the way in which we choose to build technologies is driven by what matters to us at the moment and our context and our experience and our priorities. And the technologies that we create end up shaping us and they end up shaping, for sake of argument, our our values. And a really simple example um, of that, we can go back many, many hundreds uh, or thousands of years, rather, when we went from being hunter-gatherer bands to being uh, people who had domesticated plants and animals. And when we domesticated plants and animals, for the first time, we had surplus, which means for the first time, human, there could be humans who didn't spend their time gathering food. Mm. And that created a new value, the value in having enough power that you didn't have to go out and hunt your food or gather your food because other people did it for you. That was a value that emerged as a consequence of technology. And and I think it's really important that we recognize that 20,000 years later, we still shape technology and the technologies we build still shape us. When you were saying that, all I can imagine is, so that's where here in the States, college football weekenders came from, was we could now, we domesticated animals and we could grow and store food. And so now we've got championship football. Okay, I get it. I see, I see the correlation. No, you're exactly right. And I, one of the things I'm, I'm, I would love for you to tease out though, is, you know, you talked about electricity, um, uh, the car and um, the telephone. That's right. And as I'm thinking about those, um, the early days in order to, um, if for car, I also kind of lump, I know this just for me, lump railroads or whatever in there, Mm -hmm. but in any event, um, we made power plants on site. And then when we made the, when the central station for electricity came along, we, we moved to those and we extended it probably a 30 or 40 year period from, when wherever these things were invented, they really took root, at least in the States in particular. And it feels like that's they at that time, if I'm living in that era, would feel like this is an exponential change. I'm not just, you know, once a week, I would go to church as much to meet my future spouse or to make plans on who's harvesting whose crop as it was to participate in whatever the social norm of the whatever was. And it would take me half a day to ride there in my cart and buggy and a ha- right. So many things changed as a result of those technologies and, and to the people living in those eras, I got to believe it ha- They felt like it happened at the speed of light. Do you think we will have that same perspective 20 years from now, looking back to now that, Oh, you thought that was real change back in 2021 when you developed a vaccine in a year where before it was, you know, decades of trial and error and all this other stuff. And you've, you've learned all this combinatorial chemistry and you've brought all of the 3d printing and all this stuff together and, um, and can simulate through essentially a digital twin uh, vaccines instead of having to do all the trials traditionally. Do you think it'll be the same or are we, are we literally on such a hockey curve change that no, we're going to say this is truly a demarcation from what we thought was exponential change in the past. Well, I, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right that people had their experiences of change in the 19th century and the early 20th that felt that it was really, really uh, uh, quick. And a lot of it's documented in the newspaper reports of uh, of the time. And 
the thing that I think is is distinct uh, today is that um, if you actually look at the absolute rates with which these technologies diffuse uh, through society, uh, it's got much, much, much faster. Uh, and on top of that, our lifespan um, has got much longer. So we see already, uh, you know, many, many different. Uh, platforms running through. I mean, if you think about the telephone, um, most of us have probably seen four distinct type of phones in our in our lives already. From you know the fixed line phone to the first mobiles to mobiles with smart some right. smarts but not smartphones and app right. store based mobiles, and and or if you look at what's happening in social networks and the sort of cascade of these technologies that, that you know TikTok above Insta above Snap above Facebook above what it was uh, MySpace and the things before that, and so these these this pace of of change is is speeding up, and it's not purely because of silicon chips. It's also uh, uh, picking up because the, the the profit is there, the opportunity is there, and the infrastructure is there. You know, today uh, compared to. Uh, the very first social network that I used, which was called Six Degrees, uh, back in 1997, I'm going to say, mm-hmm. um, everyone has a smartphone. If you get a social network that that works, it can spread to 500 million people in in a matter of months, as as TikTok did. Right. So, so it does feel qualitatively different. We can explain why it feels different, and then I think your to your question of will will it continue to to speed up, in in you know, I expect things to speed up for you know some period of time, decades uh, maybe, because we've got billions of people on the planet and we have really really complex economies and they're all geared up at the moment, even with all these weird supply chain issues, to adopt innovations at a at a big rate. And we've really just got got started. Will this continue? You know, for hundreds of years, um, I'm 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 not sure. It's not a question I tackle in the book because I, I wanted the book to tackle really the next fifteen to twenty to twenty five years. Yeah. Uh, but even as I I talk I talked to a nuclear fusion engineer, um, you know, earlier a couple of, for a few hours this week, and he said in fusion, you know, we've got effectively, he said we've got fifteen or twenty years at least of accelerating development happening in that field. So, you know, I, I think that there are reasons to think that this will continue. Yeah, I, you know, um, I, I, I agree as well. I'm not sure what that implies, but I agree as well. And I you know who I've, I've started to um, get annoyed with is all the folks around quantum, fill in the blank, physics, computation, whatever, because they walk in the room and they kind of get snarky. They're like, yeah, 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 you people, you silicon people moving at the speed of, wait till quantum hits. It's going to break your blockchain. It's going to break your, leave the room. Go fix your pocket protector. I don't want to talk to you. For a nerd to tell another nerd to leave the room, that's pretty serious stuff. But so we'll see what happens when uh, um, that comes on. You had a great story that I heard, um, and you're just reminding me of it now, of this young lady, a high schooler in Ireland, I believe. So brilliant. Because here's why. Let me me set up why I'm going to ask you the question. I want you to tell the story if you don't mind. And it is, as I'm imagining, of course, it's going to accelerate as you were talking, because there are so many people that are going to look at this. And I'm going to use the word exploit to mean different things. How do I exploit this to make 
local food production, healthier and whatever. There's a, there was a, a study that came out years ago, but really interesting thing that when we invented the tomato harvester, we invented hybrid tomatoes because they needed to be able to pick them quick. And, um, you know, they had to be firmer than a typical tomato and all right. these other things. Oh, and it actually created a, um, a lot of jobs. It elevated. There was a lot of fear. There's a big lawsuit. Uh, one of the California schools was part of defending this suit uh, because they said you're using public mon money to displace workers. When it turned out, those workers got elevated from picking to canning higher price. Tomato prices went down, like all this great benefit. And it created the the pure hand-picked tomato industry where there are now micro farms of these super juicy but very soft tomatoes that can only be grown in certain situation can only be harvested they need harvesters of a certain skill and experience like this whole all of this stuff and so people are of course are going to exploit either how do i make my little micro thing my niche my boutique or mm -hmm. how do i make my my large macro whatever for whatever purpose and whether that's an economic perspective it's a political perspective it's a it's a war a defense whatever it is we're absolutely going to leverage these things in a way that we feel like benefits us and our tribe or whatever mm. and and then i recalled that story you talked about this young woman who well, well you just why don't you take it from there because our audience will love sure. this Oh, it's just a great story. So um, for many, many years, there's been a science uh, competition in Ireland, which uh, is a really big part of the national calendar. And high schools uh, uh, get their 16 and 17 year olds to enter the, the this competition. Uh, and there was a student called Laura Sullivan who uh, decided to try her hand using uh, machine vision, a type of AI technique, uh, to look at uh, the uh, images of, of uh, cervical smears uh, to see whether she could design a system that could uh, predict whether that smear was abnormal or normal. And what had dri driven her was that a year or so earlier, there had been a terrible medical scandal in Ireland where a lot of women were wrongly diagnosed uh, from their, uh, their, their cervical smears, and it led to all sorts of sort of horrible health outcomes. Mm. And so, so Laura put her mind to this, and uh, she went off and in what was turned out to be her first ever programming project of any scale, self-taught, she built a system that, yes, it's a it's what we'd call a toy system. It works in the lab rather than in, in a sort of hospital that could look at um, scans of cervical smears and identify whether they were abnormal or not. And it could do so in a kind of closed benchmark better than a human doctor. And it was really, really fascinating. It's a great example of the kind of shortening of knowledge and, and capability that takes place in, in the exponential age and speeds things up. Mm -hmm. I mean, Laura used a bunch of techniques that frankly, we would have considered magic 15 years ago. Sure. And one of the key techniques she actually had to use was super sophisticated at the time. Um, it was called um, generative adversarial networks. So as some of your listeners will know, when you're trying to train a, a machine learning system, you need to give it a lot of data. Mm -hmm. You also need to give it balanced data. So if you're trying to 
trainer system between to discriminate between cats and dogs. You can't give it a million pictures of dogs and nine pictures of cats. It just right. it just won't work. You sort of have to do a million of each. Right. And the same is true for this particular data set. And what Laura found was, as you might expect, the data set was quite unbalanced and didn't have enough um, abnormal smears. So she said, what, what I can do is generate some realistic synthetic data and I'll use the GAN technique to do that. Now, just for a second, think back to when you were 17 and none of that would have made sense. I mean, even Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock would not have understood right. back in 1989 when I was 17, what that meant. And yet, she had access to that. She knew that was a problem. And she, a month ago, had none, known none of that. She had, And she had learned from YouTube and a couple of books online. And I find that um, just such incredibly endearing, heartwarming and, heartwarming and also representative story of what one of the drivers of this exponential speed up that I suspect will happen across large parts of society. Yeah, it, it, I, I love the story. And um I love it because it's also, it's not just, uh, I love to see people that are, um, have the instinct to be that um, uh, ingenious, you know, just mm -hmm. sort of, hmm, let me ask the question. It usually just starts off with curiosity, but also that she had the tools, which was somebody's probably posted something. How could I do this? Where, where, where could that take me? Um, Warren Buffett has talked famously about, look, I've got a certain set of skills and they work in this generational era that I live in. Before this, I might have been a pauper. After this, they may not be relevant because computers may be able to do it, but I'm, I'm leveraging them and my tool sets now. And I, I love that idea. As, as we think about one of the things I've been talking to people a lot about is cities. Not, mm -hmm. not the way that you talk about them in the book necessarily, but in this, um, I, for a couple of reasons. One, we're post, are we post pandemic? I don't know. I, I, I'm tired of checking the news. One day I'm post pandemic, the next I'm, I'm not, and I'm reboostering or whatever that complexity is, it'll sort itself out. But in terms of smart cities, there's a lot of conversation here where I live in the greater Atlanta area about taking distressed assets, um, con converting them into the, the concept we've been talking about a while for a while, work, play, live kind of idea and these micro organisms and things that might be blight on the city, old malls or shopping centers or commercial businesses. And there's, there's some conversation about that going on. I thought that's what you're going to talk about in your book. And of course, there's a lot of conversation for a period of time in the last year about people are going to leave the cities for a variety of reasons. Remote work has made some of that possible. The highly interconnected fiber infrastructure in regular communities, smaller communities themselves are putting on, I just was reading something about Tulsa, Oklahoma. I believe it was Tulsa saying, come live here. We'll give you high-speed connectivity. We'll give you this quality of life and you can do your Bay Area job. You can do your New York City job or whatever, but you get all of these schools and place to live and all this other stuff. And so there's kind of a, there's a war and there's been a number of articles out there um, published, some that you cite, Wharton, mm -hmm. I believe is one of them that say, well, it's either a myth or it's not as pronounced. And there's a lot of expectation that people will come back. But where you took it that I thought was really interesting, and I'd like to talk about is this idea of relocalization commodities, which is kind of where you start with that. Mm -hmm. um, because you set up the premise of a city today or pre-pandemic, 
pre-exponential look like this. And it mm -hmm. it produced some things in it, but mostly it was these university taught in many cases, not always, but right, the, these workers and these dynamic things going on, but a lot of the things necessary for a city to operate and be sustaining comes from somewhere outside the city. Can you can you kind of take it from there? What where do you see um, the exponential age impacting uh, the health of a city? Mm. Well, there are so many dynamics around around cities. One of which is technology, and there are some other things that are going on. I think that that mm -hmm. are relevant to, to consider. Sure. Um, but if you look at a lot of these exponential age um, technologies, they break the uh they enable uh, a localization of uh of capability that that is that the things that we need um energy food manufactured uh products uh we can produce more locally than than ever before mm -hmm. and and that is um that creates an an option that we we didn't previously have i mean the reason why um you know, lettuces and watercress are grown in farms rather than in cities is that it's simply too expensive and space inefficient to do it in cities right now. So they're grown for the supply for the supply chain, right? Not for our, our health and nutrition. Right. Now there are these new technologies, these combinations of computing and robotics and genomics and aeroponics and renewable power that allow us to create high intensity urban farms. They're called vertical farms where you take a field and you chop it up into 12, 13, 14 stories. So it's sort of vertical and through the computer controls and uh, the, the robotic system, you grow the produce right next to the supermarket, which is near where people live. Right. And for the first time really in history, cities have a path then for some measure of food independence. Mm -hmm. Now we're starting with vertical urban farms, but there are technologies that I just in the interest of space didn't, didn't talk about in the book um, that will also tackle this with, with protein. So for example, uh, lab grown meats or um, precision fermented alternative proteins that, that get grown in bioreactors and don't require you know, millions of of acres of rolling fields right. uh, to, to graze animals, those types of technologies can be quite high intensity and they can be brought in locally. Mm -hmm. When you add the, the fact that large parts of energy, the energy system will start to distribute, right? Right now in most countries, the energy system is um, production somewhere, mm -hmm. lots of cables uh, piping around the country and then into our homes. Mm -hmm. But in a in an exponential age, a lot of production of energy will happen uh, on domestic solar at home, in community solar, in city-scale utility solar, in or around the outside of the, the city, in wind farms, as well as you know, a, ten, a, ten, a thousand miles away. Right. And through local storage, whether it is, is batteries or molten salt or gravity storage, right. we, will, we will have you know, district scale or town scale storage to support that. I mean, one of my favorite examples, of course, is the virtual battery made by stringing together spare capacity in 20,000 electric vehicles in a, in a town. Yeah. Um, and, and so all of those technologies create the possibility for energy, food, and then with 3D printing, manufacturing to be 
much more localized within 500 yards of where of where you are and because of that i would expect that that will create a pressure on our ideas of global supply chains or national power grids not not to replace them 100% because that doesn't happen but actually to shift the balance to provide some headwinds to that direction and to that assumption um, and these are big systems, right? The energy system and the food system are big systems. So even in the exponential age, they don't change overnight, but they might start to change quite uh, quite quickly. Uh, you know, as a measure of this, of course, it's 2021. I think about these technologies a lot, but I, I don't get my watercress or my lettuces from a vertical urban farm that's 300 meters away. Right. And I don't get my, my electricity from a solar farm in my neighborhood. It comes from a solar plant and a wind, wind farm you know, hundreds of miles away. So, so it's not yet percolated very far amongst early adopters, but I can see it happening. Not only that, I, there's so much enthusiasm when, if I were to bring up that idea to a regular group of people in a small town, in a city or whatever, where we said, look, first of all, just the amount of energy and infrastructure, we don't have to consume or spend moving things around because they're here. Um, job opportunity, independent, like there's just so many things that are valuable, presuming the economics and the technology and all of that work, the redundance, redundancy of systems work. I see, um, I see a great uh, momentum towards making that happen. But one of the things that is, so I get excited in the book. I'm like, yeah, wow, that's a great idea. I love seeing how that, especially here where we live, there's a lot of pressure on these distressed commercial assets. And there's conversations already. People are saying, hmm, what if we could turn these into vertical farms or move them out of the way and do something like that here? Or here's opportunities in our midst to take advantage of, you know, the changing landscape. But then you sort of, um, at least in my mind, you throw me a curve where you say, but not so fast. Here's the thing. One of the benefits that you get by these interdependencies is, for lack of a better word, peace. You get cooperation. You get, you know, states have to cooperate each other. Townships have to, co the, the urban areas and the rural areas, um, you know, cooperate with the metropolitan areas and they, they you know, it affects the rules of commerce between them and how traffic flows and all of these other things. But if I'm independent, um, it seems to me that that, and you make that point in a variety of ways in a variety of locations, um, what's the consequence of, uh, you know, greater and greater, do, does that mean more tribalism? Does that mean, you know, what does that look like? So as mm. you've done your research, what, how do you think well, about that? I mean, it, it, it's the, sort of the, 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 uh, the bull case for this story, of course, is that it makes local communities <laughs> uh, more vibrant and you people are involved in the production of, of their food, right? right. <laughs> it doesn't right. just come in a plastic bag, right. uh, which is, which is, uh, you know, obviously a really lovely idea. Um, the, I think that the, the, the challenge that we're starting to see is that um, particularly between nations, there is a sense that, there is now strategic competition around these technologies, right? And around semiconductors and AI and quantum computing. Mm -hmm. And that creates an additional impetus to try to decouple um, as far as uh, as nations can. And I think that that does create a, um, you know, a, a warning, something that we ought to 
just be a little bit nervous of. And the theory has for a long time been that nations that trade to each, with each other don't, don't go to war with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that said, again, the, the global economy is really, is really big. And these relationships are often very, very deep. And they may change in the margins quite quickly, but it might take a little bit of time for them to change in an absolute scale. Mm-hmm. What I would hope would happen to, to sort of mitigate the the kind of the, the, the fighting risk, right, or the choke risk, uh, and we've seen real, um, you know, we have seen real flexing of, of power in recent years, um, you know, Russia over the threat of gas to, to Europe, Western Europe, um, the US um, and its application of um, uh, measures against Chinese uh, firm Huawei, effectively killing its smartphone business, um, is that we have to establish deeper patterns of, of cooperation. We have to find things that we have in common with other people, even if we're not necessarily trading with them. And we have to encourage uh, in different ways, good behavior from these partners, um, because it won't be sufficient to believe that as uh, the supply chains are gonna keep us together. Uh, Yeah, and in fact, one of the points that you make, or at least conclusion I drew, but I think you do make this point is the nations is the obvious one. And a number of people have talked long before this idea of exponential age, but they've looked over it over the last, Certainly decades. In fact, it's this interesting conundrum of we never traded more in the history of the world before World War One and World War Two, and yet we still had those great wars. But but the research that you supplied said overall, by and large, people cooperate. They just don't um, go to war with each other, generally speaking. There may be small regional conflict, but they generally don't do that. But I'm wondering if I've got a New York City, which has five bridges that separates it from the rest of the state. And if it's 40 years from now, 35 years from now, Snake Plissken hasn't shown up and escaped from New York yet. So it's a vibrant community. And um, and it just, you know, and and down the road, uh, I don't know, uh, Philadelphia or something, you know, and there's there's an event, there's some sort of a weather event, or there's a regional event. And New York makes enough for New York and Philly and Pittsburgh make enough for themselves or Cleveland or whatever these big centers are. And, and now they're calling on their neighbor. Hey, can you help me? We saw this in Texas when um, their grid was isolated from the rest of America and they had this freak weather event and parts of the grid, natural gas failed. And so they had to, in the rest of the U.S., you could tap into uh, you know the New Mexico grid or the Georgia grid or whatever you can tap in other places. And because they were more isolated, they didn't have the ability to do that. Without diving into the politics of that, that was just a reality of these interconnected well, systems, right? Yeah, although that is all about politics. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, and and the Texas decision, uh, you know, I, I think is a great it's a great anti-pattern. I think designers know software designers know this idea of patterns and anti-patterns. Patterns yeah. are things you want to do, and anti-patterns are things you don't want to do. Yeah. Um, and 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 what we want to avoid is the um the 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 politics and the rulemaking that led to ERCOT, which is the the sort of energy system of Texas, essentially to be disconnected from the rest of the the U.S. system, so that in a moment of difficulty, uh, it had nowhere to, uh, to to turn. And yeah. I think that that's one of the the, the 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 key challenges, which is the the one of the things that nation states have done for hundreds of years is that they've created a sense of mutual interdependence between provinces and regions and cities uh which which means that 
at a national level, things can often, roughly speaking, work. And of course, in different countries, in a federal system in the US, um, you can you can draw up your drawbridge. Normally, you draw up your drawbridge to protect yourself from outside attackers. Texas, in the case of electricity, drew up its drawbridge to prevent itself receiving aid, which I, right. I guess is, I mean, that's liberty, right? Yeah. So, so how would you go about thinking about this? I mean, I think that we started to see, um, we started to see during the pandemic, uh, real uh, what can happen when when people get uh, pushed? Now, I don't think Kurt Russell uh, showed up uh, in this part of the UK, but there were parts of the UK further away from the, the big cities where you know Londoners were trying to escape in March and April of 2020. Uh, you know the sort of plague infested city right. to to go out to their countryside and rent homes out there. And friends who live down in some of those more rural areas said that there were people putting signs up on the sides of the highway saying, Londoners go home. Um, and, and so we do get, I think, some of the tensions that you identify at these moments of pressure. Now, how do we, how do we tackle that mm -hmm. um, in, um, uh, you know, in a, in, in a future across the society? I think that of course, the overarching nation state, the national government will come in and it will make its own requirements and claims and, and sort of legislate for it. Mm -hmm. But even before we're told to do that, maybe there is just an importance of establishing some degree of uh, mutualism and mutual support for uh, for neighbours. I mean, ultimately, the original internet, uh, before it got sort of hostage to very, very large companies, was right. all about sort of independent nodes on the network, independent networks that that were actually defined by something called an AS, an autonomous system number. Yeah. Um, but they all worked together in, in, in tandem. And once in a while, there'd be a bad actor or some engineer would flick the wrong switch and would create a black hole. And all of these networks would mutually work together to, to fix that and to fix that problem. Um, and so I think we have got patterns that, that, that do describe how we could establish that degree of um, uh, mutuality, but it is, I'm afraid you wanted to avoid politics. It ends up being a, a sort of a political question. You could imagine in more divided side societies that that might be harder to achieve. One of the things that you illustrated that really, I thought was really interesting was you, and you just talked about it today, national governments make the rules. And it makes sense. This is what we've done for centuries, whether they're empires or they're representative republics, whatever they are, that that's what happens. Um, but you, but you made the point that look, cities, um, while we talk about nations, cities um, have created um, a lot of change. In fact, they've been at the forefront of a lot of the exponential age challenges where Uber disrupted transportation services and mobility services, some for the better, some not. Um, mm -hmm. Airbnb, these other technologies, and they've they've absorbed them. They, they are working through them. They're figuring out how they work in their communities, what works for their people, what legislation needs to be adjusted or, or whatever. And that, um, so one, they're pretty dynamic. And two, that that they may rise in power, that there that there may be that there may be I don't know if tension is the right word, but this way that the national is going to have to figure out how to work with these um, powerful, possibly self-sustaining organizations. And in the mm -hmm. states, it's really interesting because we're pretty nationalist people. Just tends to be our our um, 
our perspective unique in the, mm-hmm. I don't know that we're unique in the world, but that seems to be very, you know, everywhere I go, there's American flags flying. And when I go in other parts of the country, that's not, or the world, that's not necessarily no, true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we sort of have this, whether it's just something we've bought into or whatever, where, how do you see that? Do, do you give a lot of thought, you know, down the road, do you really see um, cities, whether it's here or in other places growing in power and that the national politicians and politics are going to have to find a way to get along? It's a real, um, it's a push-pull. I mean, it's obviously going to be a deep, deep push-pull, but one of the things that it will start to uh, happen is that cities will end up having um, more and more uh, capabilities within their own, within their own remit. They will have their own uh, power. They will have uh, increasingly more of their own, I mean, electrical power generation. They'll have their own food. They'll have more of their own manufacturing. And I think the fundamental, um, reality of complex advanced economies is that they will continue to outperform uh, in terms of uh, innovation and cultural output and education and income, uh, as well as being more sustainable and having, relatively speaking, a lower um, uh, sort of sustainable environmental footprint. So all of those things are going to come to bear. And it's no surprise that in the last five or or 10 years in countries that have had particularly uh, polarizing elections of different types, whether it's the US or the UK with its Brexit referendum or Turkey uh, or Austria, the the, the fault line has been between cities and uh, the the, the rural sort of uh, countryside. And, And so no no nation willingly easily gives up its power either to a supernatural body or downwards towards cities (laughs) that's why i see say see this as as a a push me pull you thing but there is a sort of inevitability when it comes towards the idea of democratic accountability that becomes hard for democratically accountable people at the national level to to ignore and if it turns out that the best type of energy policy is much more of a devolved energy policy then that's i think what you'll end up starting to to see and what i would say is compared to the uk for example while the us may feel that it's you may feel it's more nationalistic um us regions and cities and towns and districts have much much more control over their policing or education or certain aspects of kind Mm -hmm. of public order policy than is the case in uh, the European countries, which are largely driven by, by national mandates. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, You know, you have a very different, and it's not just city size, you have a very different experience in the coastal cities than you may in a Chicago or a Dallas, just from a, um, you know, the way they self-legislate the, 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 political bent of the populations that live there and they um you know they they adjust uh and it, there's there's a lot less there's a lot of freedom to move from sort of the national big ideas we have for all of our complaining and shaking our fists on occasion really and truly uh we have a we have way more freedom than pretty much any place else on earth i know we're coming up to um mm. our time i can't even believe it. i just looked over and said man we probably got about another 20 minutes we have a couple more minutes i we do yeah you, uh, yeah so 
<sighs> we didn't dive into drone, like battle drone, all kinds of stuff I want to talk about. We can, I, uh, we'll make sure that um, we link to the best way to get in touch with um, you, your book, uh, your website. Let me just ask in closing is, is now that you've written it, two things. One, what do you want to write next? And two, what sort of your overall sense? Are you optimistic? Are you, are you pessimistic? What, how are you thinking about now that you've written this and you have, you have children, if I remember correctly. Yeah. 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 I have three kids. Um, I, I think we, we, what we need to do is um, we need to show up. Mm. And we need to show up and pay attention to what's going on and, and and what what matters. And what I try to do in the book is try to describe what's happening from a technology perspective and how that those technologies interact with businesses and our economy and society. And and in a way, I think that although of course I have my own politics and my own perspective and position, mm. but but in a way, I hope that my diagnosis of the process is something that has has some merit that can be stripped out of whatever bias I bring to the question. Mm-hmm. And I want people to be able to show up and ask those questions and participate in it. Uh, we have spent a long time um, thinking that to care about technology was to upgrade our iPhone uh, when the carrier gave us the uh, opportunity. <laughs> uh, and that's that's not the case. You know, this is the, the fabric of everything that we try to do. However trivial, there is a technology company that sits between us and the thing that we want to achieve for our absolute basic needs. Yeah. And so it's really important that we we show up. And I don't have a stronger prescription than that. I, I encourage people to buy the book, to read the book, to consider it, to discuss it, to agree or disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost don't mind. What I would love to know is that you start thinking about it and you start applying that in your, you know, in your day job or your community role or your family role to help you show up and participate in shaping this. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I, it's such an easy read. I highly recommend uh, people check it out and um, I'm going to give out some for Christmas. What, oh, um, yeah, no, my pleasure. I love it. Cause I just want them to, I, again, I don't necessarily want them to agree with all of your conclusions, but I want them to think about the consequences of this stuff that we're participating in. What, what are you going to write next? I wish I could tell you, um, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not, keeping it secret because I don't want you to know just yet, David. Uh, it's more that um, I think I need a, a, a few weeks to let something <laughs> ferment and brew okay. uh, in my head. But let me tell you, I did spend two hours with a company built, trying to build fusion reactors this week, which was pretty exciting. Um, and uh, there's still many more exciting things coming down the track. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you, Azim, for joining us today. Um, so many things we could have talked about. I really value your time. And we'll make sure everybody uh, gets connected. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.